You know what I wanted to minister tonight? I got kind of two things I'm going to combine here, but a lot of it is exactly what God was doing here tonight when we just started praising the Lord. That is probably the most effective way of doing warfare against the devil that there is, is just praise. And uh, the Lord has already ministered that pretty strongly. I'm going to go into some scriptures and share that. But first, let's turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 12. And I want to kind of wind some of this up, tie some loose ends together. Matthew chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus had just been talking about John the Baptist. Excuse me, it is Matthew chapter 12. This is the reason some people prepare notes, see, and write things down so they get this straight. Praise God. I don't think it's Matthew chapter 12. Let me find this this second. It's Matthew chapter 11. Here it is. Matthew chapter 11. He'd just been talking about John the Baptist, and in, cha in chapter 11, verse 11, it says, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, I want to go on to the next verse, but first, I need to say this. See, when we're talking about a spiritual authority, this is a radical statement right here. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? He says, Among those that have been born of women... Who does that include? That's <laughs> right, just about everybody I can think of. In other words, it's just an old English way of saying out of every person that has ever been born, there has never been a greater than John the Baptist. That means John the Baptist was greater in authority, in power, than Moses. Man, the one that did all of these awesome miracles and, and held his rod out over the sea and all of these things. We talk about the power and the authority that he had. John the Baptist was greater than that. You think about Elijah that raised people from the dead. No one had ever been raised from the dead when Elijah did it. It was a brand new thing. Elijah just broke new ground. Saw people raised from the dead. Elijah saw people raised from the dead. Elijah called fire down out of heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Man, Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. Just think of all the miraculous, powerful things that have happened. Think about all of these Old Testament giants and the tremendous things that happened. Jesus said, among every person that has ever been born, John the Baptist is greater than that. But you know what? John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament. And now we are in the New Testament. We have a new covenant. And he says, nevertheless... He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. What a radical statement. Most people, see, are constantly comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves, which the Bible says is not wise. But most people are looking around. And, you know, people tend to put others in categories. They put people into groups and call them clergy and laity, which I really dislike that. I believe that there shouldn't be that type of a distinction. But uh, people will say, well, I believe Pastor Dean, he's just got more than I've got, and they expect him to have more power and more authority and all of these things. That's not the right way to look at things. All of us can operate in the supernatural power of God. Somebody might have a different ministry than you do. You may never be called upon to stand up in front of people. But, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people that never had a pulpit-type ministry that are just full of the Holy Ghost and doing great, great miracles. 
We had some ladies in one of the Bible studies I taught in Lamar, Colorado that raised their mother from the dead. She died, and they called all the sisters. There were seven sisters that lived in the same town. They went and raised her mother from the dead. And uh, she got up and walked two miles that afternoon into town and bought groceries and came back. <laughs> this same lady had her little daughter playing on a big old 1,000-something motorcycle, and the motorcycle fell over on top of this 18-year-old baby and crushed the head flat. And, you know, she stood there and prayed, and it took about 30 minutes, and that head straightened back out, and the baby was dead. And she prayed, never even took it to the hospital. And that baby came back to life, and is totally normal, is now about 13 or 14 years old, nothing wrong with it. And this lady, you know what she does? for a living. She's the one that I mentioned the other day that was so poor she couldn't do anything and she just started praying and God gave her this creative idea about the clay and now she's a multi-multi-millionaire, has like three or four hundred women in Columbia working in a factory for her. Just a housewife. Amen. But you know what? She's anointed. See, we compare and say, well, I think that a person that's a minister, they ought to be more powerful. The truth is, all of us can operate in this power and authority, but even if you believe that there are some people that are more anointed than others, if you believe that you are the weakest, puniest, sorriest saint that has ever breathed, this scripture says that you are greater than John the Baptist, therefore greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha, greater than Isaiah, Jeremiah, any of those guys. That's powerful. And yet I can promise you there are lots of people I deal with that they don't doubt that God has power. And they don't doubt that I have power. If I tell them that I've seen miracles, they don't doubt it. That's one of the reasons that they come to me and they ask me to pray. But they are just absolutely convinced that they don't have a lick of power. They are totally convinced that the devil can beat them hands down. They let the devil talk them out of it. You have to just totally, you ought to take some scissors and cut this verse totally out of your Bible and throw it away. You just don't believe this verse if that's the way you feel. If you feel like, oh, I just don't have any power against the devil, then you just don't believe this verse. It says, if you are least in the kingdom of heaven, if you are the sorriest saint that has ever breathed the breath, you have more power, more authority than any of these people that you would just love to be like. As a matter of fact, if you study other scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and other places, those scriptures say that the Old Testament saints longed for, looked for, earnestly sought the Lord and besought the Lord about the day that you and I live in. They had prophecies. They had little glimpses that there was something better coming. And the scripture says that they longed for the day that you and I live in. You know, Moses would have given up everything he ever experienced, all of the power of God that ever flowed in his life to have the power and the authority that you have. What you have, it... <laughs> I know some of you are choking on this. I'm not even to the verse I'm going to, but look over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to show this to you out of the Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 6 it says, Who hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. These are just terms for the Old Testament versus the New Testament. The Old Testament kills. The New Testament gives life. In verse 7, But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones... What's that talking about? 
the law, those Ten Commandments that were written and engraven in stones. It calls it administration of death. It says, if that was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? He's comparing what Moses had to what you and I have. Moses saw the Lord spent 40 days in the presence of God, didn't eat any food, didn't drink any water, which you can't go over three days without drinking water, without beginning to die, and seven days is about the limit for the average person without drinking water. He went supernaturally for 40 days without food or water, came down from the mountain, got mad at the people, threw the tables down, went right back up and spent another 40 days without food or water. So he spent a total of about 81 days without food or water. Awesome. And in this time, he fellowshiped with the Lord so much so that when he came down, his face was ra literally radiating and shining forth light. And the people were so afraid. The glory of God was on Moses that they made him put a veil over his face because they couldn't stand to look at the face of God. God was so much on that man that people were intimidated by it and fearful, and he had to put a veil over his face. When he went in to pray, he'd take the veil off, but when he went before the people, he had to put the veil over his face. And this scripture is saying if what he had was glorious, what you have makes what he has look like it didn't even have any glory in comparison. Brothers and sisters, if you can believe that, you're going to have to admit that, hey, I've missed something. You're going to have to admit that, God, I must have something I don't know what I've got because I can guarantee you many of you have looked at that show, The Ten Commandments, and thought, man, that's awesome. What I wouldn't give to have something like that. Moses is saying, what I wouldn't give to have something like the sorriest, weakest saint in this tent. Moses would just have given anything to have what you have, and yet here we are, belly aching and wishing that we could have what they had. Somebody's wrong. It's you. In verse 9, he says, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. What you have exceeds the glory of what any Old Testament saint had. John the Baptist was the greatest of all Old Testament saints, and if you're the weakest of all of the New Testament saints, you have more than John the Baptist, therefore more than anybody else. In verse 10, it says, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. He's saying that in comparison, there wasn't any glory. There was no power. There was no authority. There was nothing under the Old Testament compared to what you and I have. And yet I can guarantee you that many of you go around belly aching, griping, and complaining. What would you think if Moses went around just talking about, oh God, if I could just ever see anything happen. God, if there was ever any power in my life. You'd look at that and you'd think about what's wrong with this guy. Doesn't he know what he's got? And yet I can promise you, you have infinitely, infinitely more than what Moses had and how many of us go around griping and complaining. There's a lot of you saying, brother, I just, I don't know what these scriptures mean, but I don't have it. I can tell you I don't have it. If I had any power in my life, if I had any authority, I'd know it. You would not. Think about this. A woman who was perfect, Eve, had never known sin. 
didn't know anything about sadness, had never known depression, had never known discouragement. Can you just picture this? Perfection. No problems. There's no such thing as hot and cold. There's no such thing as being hungry. There's no such thing as pain, sickness, disease. Nobody had ever done anything to hurt another person. They were walking in utopia. They were walking in paradise. Everything was perfect. God had provided everything that they needed. God himself walked and talked with these people every single day and fellowshiped with them. They had close communion. Is there anything you could ever dream of that Eve and Adam didn't have? They, they were perfect. They had everything. There was no wants. There was no inadequacies. And a talking snake convinced her that she was miserable. came to her and said, God deprived you. You don't have this. You could have been like God. God's trying to actually keep things from you. And a talking snake deceived her and convinced a perfect woman who had never known a problem, had never had any problem that she would be miserable and never amount to anything if she didn't disobey God and eat of that fruit. Now, if you can convince a perfect person that has everything that they're miserable don't you think you can convince a miserable person <laughs> that they don't have everything? So you've got a part of you that is miserable. You've got a part of you that's susceptible to pain, and you've experienced a lot of things that Adam and Eve have never experienced. It's in your spirit that you have this power and authority, and it takes faith for you to understand it. But the point that I'm getting at, this is awesome, what the Lord is saying. Among those that have been born of women, there has never been a greater than John the Baptist, and yet... You are greater than John the Baptist. And many of you have never had that thought consciously stay in your life. Many of you gripe and complain, talk about all of the things that you don't have. Satan has gotten you to where you focus on your problems. Satan has gotten you to where you are down on yourself. You know, I've talked with a number of people this week that say, I, I have no problems praying with other people, but when it comes to praying for me, I just struggle with this seems like I can pray for other people with great faith, but when it comes to myself, I struggle. You know why that is with most people? Because you know you better than you know everybody else. You have mercy towards other people. You tend to look on the good. And even though you know that they aren't perfect, you give other people more slack than you give yourself. Most of us have been taught to be so hard and condemning on ourselves. Religion has taught us that way. Religion has taught you to think that there is no good thing in you. I remember the first time. I can remember the first time I ever read Philemon, verse 6. That scripture, I mean, it shocked me. Actually, I thought this cannot be the Bible. I thought this is wrong. You know, Martin Luther struggled with James, chapter 2, so much that finally he just said, the book of James isn't supposed to be in the Bible. It was wrong, and he took it out of his Bible. Well, that's just nearly the way I felt with Philemon, verse 6. That scripture says the communication of your faith becomes effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. And I just knew that was wrong because I'd been taught all my life that if you wanted to have power and authority and if you wanted to get closer to God and if you wanted to have anything good happen, you needed to just be aware that you were the scum of the earth and the more you hated yourself and the more you were aware of how sorry you were, the better off you were. And the more you thought down on yourself, the better you were. And this scripture was saying that the communication of your faith becomes, becomes effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing that is in you. And honestly, when I read that, I thought, God, I had not got anything good thing. There's nothing good in me. 
And it took me years and years and years to begin to start realizing that there is a part of me that's born again and that has this authority and has the nature of God. And as it says in 1 John 4, 17, as Jesus is, so am I in this world. My spirit is identical to the Lord Jesus. My born-again spirit has righteousness and power and holiness in it. It took me years and years and years to begin to learn these things. But that's exactly what the Scripture says. See, we are down on ourselves. We aren't acknowledging what God has done. And the truth is that, brothers and sisters, the power that you have is awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I made mention of this this week already, but one of the reasons that the Lord is going to have to wipe tears away from our eyes is because when you stand before God, and we've been singing all of these songs about in the sweet by and by, what a day that's going to be when we all get to heaven. Further along, we'll know all about it. And we've been looking forward to heaven when God finally made us sufficient to have joy and power and equipped us. One of the things that's going to happen is that you are going to be shocked, overwhelmed, stunned, and then grief-stricken. I believe that there is going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth when Christians stand before God. And as it says in Romans chapter uh, 8, Verse 17, it says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It didn't say to us, but the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's already in you. You aren't going to all of a sudden be infused with power when you go to be with the Lord. What you're going to get is a glorified body and a mind that can totally comprehend what you already completely have in your spirit. You're going to find out that it was already on the inside and some of us are going to fall on our face and say, Oh God, I allowed my, I allowed people to die and go to hell. I suffered with sickness and disease. I was poor. I never was able to do anything. I operated in bitterness and strife and I, my whole life was tormented. My life was a wreck and the whole time you had given me the power that it took to overcome everything. It was already in me and I just let the devil beat up on me. I was a wimp. A whoosh. <laughs> oh, what do you call it? There you go. I just heard that last week. I just heard that somewhere. I thought that's pretty good. But you're going to be amazed. And we're going to stand before the Lord, and, we're, and then the Lord is going to supernaturally have to wipe the tears away from our eyes when we realize that we let the devil just literally steal and plunder from us, and we're the ones that had the authority. I guarantee you the devil is terrified of you. There are some of you that when you look in the mirror, you hate everything you see, and you think nobody cares anything, and certainly nobody's terrified of you. The devil is just literally petrified of who you are and what your potential is. He's able to see the spiritual realm which you are not able to see. And that's the reason he's fighting you so hard and deceiving you. It's because he knows that if you ever wake up to your true potential, man, he's in big trouble. The devil will be hurting for certain if you ever learn who you are in Christ Jesus. Why, well, it's awesome. I wish I could make you believe that. I'm trying. But there's a lot of you that you, you've, been thinking, you've been thinking sorry for so long that you just, it, you just can't seem to change it. I tell you, you are the ones that have the authority and power. If you could believe that, it would change your life. That's amazing. 
Can I use John Lake as an example when his sister was dying this week? Yes. Some of you said, yeah, well, most, <laughs> apparently it didn't go over very big. I'm going to say it again till you get it, praise God. But John Lake was struggling with this issue. Every member of his family had died prematurely. And finally, he was with his sister as she was dying, saying, God, why have you allowed this? Why has this happened? And the Lord spoke, and he says, I haven't allowed it. You're the one that allowed it. And he basically was speaking to him the same things we're saying, and it just startled him. He had not a clue that it was his fault that people around him were dying. But he stood, and he believed God. And anyway, his sister did die, but he stood and prayed for her even after she died and saw her raised from the dead. And that man went on to see dozens and dozens and dozens of people raised from the dead, over 500,000 documented cases of supernatural healing, so much so he was given a medical license and he opened up a hospital that didn't administer medicine. They went around and anointed with oil and prayed until people got healed in the state of Washington back around the turn of the century. And this guy saw over 500,000 documented cases of healing because somebody found out that they had the power to do it. You got power to do that. And some of us are just letting the devil run roughshod over us and, and, and crying out to God, God, why are you allowing these things in my life? God is not the one that's allowing it. You are. That power is invested in you. And before you see victory, you're going to have to start realizing that, hey, it's not God's turn to set you free or to resist the devil for you. Satan has already been defeated by God. It's your turn to stand and resist. It's not your power, but it's God's power flowing through you. Here's the verse I was wanting to get at in verse 12, Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. It says, And from the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven is preached. Or excuse me, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. You know, this scripture, what it's basically saying, I can spend a lot of time, but I need to go on to some stuff. What this is basically saying is that the kingdom of heaven has been preached under this new covenant. If you're the least in the kingdom of heaven, you're greater than John the Baptist. But since the, since the days that the kingdom of heaven is being preached, there is opposition. Did you know in the Old Testament, there's only 15 times that Satan is referred to in all of the Old Testament Twelve of those times is in the book of Job, and Job didn't have a clue that Satan was even there. It was the narrator behind the scenes talking about Satan. The other three times that Satan was mentioned in the Old Testament, two of those are the same instance, one recorded in Kings and the other one recorded in Chronicles. So if you look at it from this standpoint, there's only three instances in all of the Old Testament that Satan was referred to. That's an amazing fact. There are more than something like 20 instances in one chapter in the Bible where demons were dealt with and cast out and where Jesus dealt with spiritual forces. We have a revelation that we aren't just fighting flesh and blood, but that we're fighting principalities and powers. There is a spiritual warfare going on in the New Testament that there wasn't going on in the Old Testament. Or, let me say that it's at least apparent, it's evident in the New Testament, when it wasn't evident in the Old Testament. This is what he's talking about. In the New Covenant, there is a battle. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. The kingdom of heaven is under attack. There is a war going on. I've been talking about that all week. And it goes on to say here that the violent take it by force. 
And let me just say, the way I interpret that is that that talks about that you've got to get a little violent to be able to see these things come to pass. We've developed a lot of people that really are passive when it comes to fighting the devil and, and to receiving things from God. The average Christian, the average traditional Christian, and I, I could spend hours trying to get this point across. I'm just going to have to say this and go on, but you need to let this soak in. The average Christian has somehow or another developed a mindset, a mentality that has affected character. You know, I was talking to Dean and them today, and I said, man, it would grieve me tremendously that somebody could look at me and tell I was a preacher. I don't want to be one of these guys that you can look at and tell that you're a preacher. Or even worse, I don't want to be the kind of guy that they can look at and tell what kind of preacher you are. Boy, I don't like that stuff. You ought to be able to tell. You know, I go into hospitals to pray with people, and I walk in like this and go into intensive care, and they say, oh, it's only the family. And I tell them I'm a minister. They call for me, and I've had people look at me before. I'm not wearing a tie and a suit, and sure, you're a minister. And you know what I tell them? I say, hey, what makes you a minister? How you dress or whether you can minister? And I whip my Bible out, and I go to preaching to them. They let me go every time, amen. <laughs> they let me go. But I don't like people just looking at you and stereotyping you. But you know, the religious realm has done that. There are some people that their manner is. And there's, I've actually seen people before that walk around with their hands like this. I've seen preachers before, mainly the ones that have their collars turned around backwards, they become effeminate. And I mean, they just... I'm not against anybody. I'm just telling you this is my perspective. You know, opinions are like noses. Everybody usually has one and has a couple of holes in it. <laughs> this isn't a scientific survey. I'm just saying the ones that I know, there are a lot of preachers that are effeminate, that are weak, that are passive, and all these, and they develop a mindset. You know, I was praying with a lady. I don't know if she's here tonight, but I was praying with her last night for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And as I was praying, I could feel the resistance and some of the doubts and fears. And I used to be a Baptist. And I could see, I knew what this lady was going through. And I said, you aren't a Baptist, are you? And she said, yes. How did you know? <laughs> I picked up on it. I can listen to people pray. And I can tell you, I can tell you what church a person goes to, usually by the way they pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we've come before you so humbly today, and we just ask you, and then they end with, if it be thy will, for Jesus' sake. I can tell you a lot about a person. You know what that is? That's a religious mindset. It's a religious tradition. Pentecostals, charismatics, whoever you want to call it, we got our own religious tradition. I can tell you about, man, there's a lot of people that everything is glory to God. Praise the God, the hallelujah. Uh. Come on, can I hear somebody shout amen? Praise God. Do I have a witness? Shake that bush one more time. <laughs> 
I actually had a friend one time in, in Salt Lake City. He was in the Jesus Only Church. And they were just so excited and, and wild and screaming and stuff. And he got sick of it. And one day he says, I'm just going to see. And he got up there and he went, Maria had a, a little uh, lamb on. Man, people, yes, praise God. And he went... He went all the way through that poem, preaching it Pentecostal style, and he said they had a Jericho march like what we saw tonight. They had people dancing in the aisles. They had them worshiping God. And then he got up and closed his Bible, and he said, you bunch of religious hypocrites. He says, you've just been shouting and praising God to a secular poem. And he says, you're nothing but religious, and walked out, and walked out of the Jesus-only church and never went back. We, got, we all got our own religious deal. But the point I was trying to get across, I'm, I got sidetracked. But the point I'm trying to get across is we got these mindsets that just totally enslave us and put us into bondage. And one of them, there's many of them, but one of them is that many Christians have become so passive and so mild and so meek that they don't have any resistance to the devil. They don't even get upset with the devil. I actually went into a church. This is way back before I ever started ministering like I was. My wife was actually the minister. She was in a singing group. And every once in a while, they'd let me speak. And I went along, and I got to give a little five-minute deal. She was there in a... Uh, gospel quartet music group and they asked me to give a little five minute deal and I got up and said something about just getting angry at the devil and yelling at him and the pastor came up to me afterwards and he says brother we don't even get mad at the devil around here <laughs> I said that's the problem with you but you know there's a lot of people that you don't even get mad at the devil there's some there was actually a friend of mine that was ministering deliverance to a woman that was into so much satanic stuff that she'd been taking uh, these vows with the devil and they drank urine and did all of this stuff. And this woman was into some bad bondage. And he had ministered to her, told her about deliverance, and then he knelt around his coffee table and he says, I'm going to pray for you, and then when I get through praying, I want you to renounce these uh, covenants that you've made with the devil and rebuke the devil. So he prayed, and then it came her turn, and he says, Now I want you to talk to the devil and renounce him. And she was, you know, kneeling around this table she'd been praying with him, and she started out, and she said, Dear Satan. <laughs> and when she said that, this guy had to stop and interrupt and says, No, that's not the way you rebuke the devil. He says, You don't start off by saying, Dear Satan, or Sir, or anything like that. That's not the way you address the devil. And yet there's some people that, honestly, you don't know how to get angry at the devil. There's some people that don't know how to get mad. You know, the devil... God, excuse me, gave you the ability to get mad. There's nothing wrong with being mad as long as you don't get mad at people. Go back to that scripture we use. We aren't wrestling against flesh and blood. God never intended you, for you to use your anger against people. But the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Out of the book of Proverbs, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Let your love be without dissimulation. That means hypocrisy. In other words, true, accurate love. And then it goes on in that same verse and it says, Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. You've got to get to where you hate evil as much as you love good. 
they are two opposite forces, but love and hate need to dwell within every person at the same time. It's just not hate for people. It's hatred for the devil. You know, if you truly love a person, you ought to hate anything that's going to come to hurt that person. Somebody who says, oh, I love my wife with all of my heart, but then you see somebody want to rape her, murder her, rob her, do something like that, and you're going to say, oh, I love her with all of my heart, but I wouldn't dare do anything to hurt anybody. This just does not compute. If you truly love a person, you have to hate the things that are coming against them. And you know the Lord hates evil. Some people don't understand that, and they see only the negative side, but it's because God loves us so much, he hates the evil that's coming against us. God is a God of anger. God has wrath. God is love. And both of these things are in perfect balance and in perfect harmony. We need to get to where, when it's in our relationship with God, there needs to be passiveness. There needs to be just a receiving and saying, God, you're the boss. Lord, you tell me what to do. God, I have no opinion. I have no desires. I have no goals on my own. You give me all of my purposes and desires, and you just receive from God. But boy, once God speaks something into your heart, there needs to be this violence that these scriptures were talking about. There needs to be a commitment that man, I, God has given me a commission, God has given me a direction to go, and I guarantee you, if there is any devil that gets in my way, I'm going to run straight over him. I hate anybody, anything that comes in my way, and until you get that committed, I can just guarantee you that it's not going to work. Satan is a bully, he bluffs, he deceives, he intimidates, and until you get that committed that literally you're going to walk right through the midst of, the, of hell if you have to, through the valley of the shadow of death, until you get that committed, you aren't going to see things happen. You have to get violent with the things of God. Look at another passage of Scripture. You need to see this one out of Ephesians chapter 4. You need to look at this passage. This has been misquoted probably more than any other scripture I can think of in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 25, he says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Keep, I've heard this all of my life, that what this is talking about is the Lord says, make sure you get all strife taken care of before you go to bed every night. In other words, God knows that you're human and that you are going to get angry, and so you can get angry, and God knows it. You're probably going to get angry every day, but just make sure that you always have everything clean and forgiven and confessed before you go to bed every night. That is not what this is saying. God did not put his approval on strife during daylight, but you can't have strife at night. That is not what this verse is talking about. This is, it's a command to be angry, and then it says be angry and sin not. In other words, there is a type of anger that is not sin. There is a righteous anger. There is a godly anger. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. That means don't ever let it fall asleep. Don't ever let it wane. Don't ever let your anger trail off. Keep yourself stirred up. And the next verse says, neither give place to the devil. It's talking about being angry at the devil, being angry at unrighteousness, being angry at the things that Satan's trying to do in your life. And it says, you need, it's a command, be angry. 
and sin not. Have righteous, godly type of anger and don't ever let this anger go to sleep. And if you do, you give place to the devil. You are giving place to the devil if you aren't angry at the things of the devil. You know, it ought to get to a place that when you see people suffering, it ought to make you angry, not at the people, but at the devil. You need to get to a place that when you see people who are suffering and sick, and people who are poor, and people who are in, in marital problems, and people that you know that there's an answer and that the Lord has paid the price for this, and that you've got the answer, there ought to be an anger in your heart about, God, this isn't right. You ought to hate the things of the devil. Now, you ought to also be smart enough to recognize that there's reasons why people are in those things, and you can't always deal with everything. And uh, God has to give you an open door. I'm not... I hope you understand what I'm saying. But the point I'm getting at is that you oughtn't to get to where you, you just sympathize. There are people that actually feel sympathy and pity lots of times for things that they ought to hate. You know, Smith Wigglesworth, if you go back to people that had really miraculous healing ministries, you can find a consistent thing is that those guys literally at times lost their temper. Matter of fact, Smith Wigglesworth used to hit people poke people. He grabbed a baby one time. I can't remember all the details of this. I heard a preacher telling this. I didn't read it. But he grabbed a baby one time that was given to him and drop kicked it off the stage. This was like a eight-month-old baby. And it had something wrong with its brain, I think. And he grabbed this baby and kicked it off the stage. And when it landed on the front row, it was totally healed. He used to hit people, poke people, he screamed and yelled. And people asked him, said, why do you do those things? Why do you hit people and all this? He says, I'm after the devil. I can't help it if their body gets in the way. <laughs> Man, he was getting violent with the devil. He was fighting the devil. And if your body got in the way, it's just too bad. He was angry. And guess what? Because of it, he saw a lot of miracles happen, a lot of great things happen. I couldn't tell you the number of times, honestly, there's, I'm, I wouldn't be exaggerating to say hundreds of times that I have had problems and I've stood on the Word and I pray the Word and I just stand there and I'm releasing my faith. I may not be in fear. I may not be bitter over it and things like that, but I'm just passive. I don't even recognize what's going on. It's easy to fall into this. And then the situation keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, it reaches a place where I can't stand anymore. I've taken all I can take. And because of the knowledge that God's given me, I don't get mad at God and I don't go to complaining at Him. I turn that anger on the devil. And I, I could tell you hundreds of times I have gone in there and said, this is it. I'm not coming out until I receive. And I get violent. And guess what? Boom, just like that, miracles happen. My breakthrough comes. God answers my prayer. And then I wonder, why did I take two weeks, two months, two years to get this put out with stuff? Why didn't I get in and deal with this thing a long time ago and get it over with? I tell you, we're just passive a lot of times. You need to recognize that you need to take the teaching that we talked about this week, and if these things be true, then you need to do something. You need to stir yourself up. You need to keep yourself stirred up against the devil. You need to become violent against the devil. And you need to get in there and do it. There's a lot of things that you can do to stir yourself up. You know, this whole meeting. I believe that the reason the Lord anoints meetings like this, special meetings and stuff, is because it's just a special time. 
where you come together and you have somebody come in and man, I, it's not just me, it's the praise and the worship, it's the, there's a lot of prayer, there's a lot of things that go into this and it just, there's a, a power here that stirs you up, it challenges you. You need to attend meetings like this that minister to you. You need to be in a church fellowship that challenges you, not one that you go there and have to fight falling asleep every time. You need to go someplace where it challenges you. It's the same principle if you take a fire and you take a coal from that fire and you separate it and put it over here by itself. It's going to die out and grow coal and, uh, and it'll burn out quicker than if you leave it right in the midst of a fire. You need to be involved in an on-fire church and we could spend a lot of time talking about that. But you need to go someplace and get stirred up. The Bible talks about don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but even much more so as you see the day approaching, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If you separate yourself from the body, you are going to be hardened and become cold and insensitive towards the things of God. So you need to be in a body of believers that's encouraging you. And you know, we appreciate all of you come. I don't even know this year exactly who's been coming. I know that last year we had Presbyterians, Baptists, and uh, I don't know, everybody it seems like represented. I don't know who's here this year, and we love to have you come. We aren't criticizing you, and I'm not speaking this person. I, I'm not, I haven't got a single person in mind right now, but I can tell you this. I see a lot of people come to meetings like this, and you come over here, and in a sense, you bootleg the gospel. You come over to a place like this to hear the gospel, and then you go back into your church and sit there and think that you're going to change them, and I can promise you it doesn't work that way. I have pastored three churches, and it takes a mighty, mighty move of God for a pastor to change a church. It takes the power and the anointing of the Holy Ghost. It's nearly impossible for a pastor to change a church, and I can guarantee you, you will not change your church, and even if you think you could, you're out of order. It's not right for you to change your church. You need to find a church that you can be a part of and get in and, and take the yoke on you and pull with them. God didn't ordain you to change the church. And if you're trying to do it, if the pastor is up there just preaching his heart out and going in totally the wrong direction and you're pulling in the other direction, you're doing damage to that church. That you would be better off to let those people go the wrong direction in unity than to get in there and sow discord and try and turn it around. If you really love the people, go on with God. Get some place that you can get turned on, and then when you see these people, pray for them and let God open up doors. But you are not going to change the church by going in there and countering their doctrine and sitting there and, and opposing everything that they're doing. You need to get into a church that preaches and believes the things that stir you up, the things that are ministering to you. You need to get in some place that will encourage you. Amen. Amen. And I don't have anybody in mind, but I can guarantee you that there's people in this body right here tonight that are not doing what I'm talking about. And you're suffering. And as a result, you just wonder why things are happening. It goes back to some of those things we talked about earlier. You know, there's spiritual laws. And one of those laws is not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the oil upon the head of Aaron that ran down his beard and into the skirts of his garment as the dew upon Mount Hermon. For there the Lord commands the blessing, even life, forevermore. Man, if you want the blessing of God manifest in your life, you need to get with some believers that stir you up and challenge you. 
If you aren't being challenged, move on. Amen. And I know some of you, well, my mother died in this church. They got a plaque on our pews. You're just like that skunk that went to church. You get to sit in your very own pew. Amen. <laughs> some of you are a little slow catching up. But I tell you, you need to go on with God. That's just real practical stuff. You know, we're running late. I hadn't got time to go into all of this, but let me just say some things real quick. Let me say some things real quick, okay? That praise is one of the most powerful things you'll ever do to keep yourself stirred up. I got a tape series over here that'll go in four hours and a half teaching on this, entitled The Effects of Praise. But praise affects you in three major areas. It'll affect you, number one. It'll keep you stirred up. Did you know that praise to God will automatically make you, make you hate the things of the devil? When you really love God, the more you love God, the more you're going to hate the things that are anti-God. The more you'll hate the things that God hates. And so as you praise God, it starts changing you. It affects you. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, or verse 6, it says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, abounding therein with thanksgiving, as ye have been taught. It's saying abounding in thanksgiving, and it's talking about, or excuse me, it says abounding therein, it's talking about faith. That thanksgiving is the way that you abound in faith. Anybody get that? Kind of butchered that verse. It says, rooted and built up and established in the faith, abounding therein with thanksgiving. You abound in faith with thanksgiving. Turn that verse around and say this, that if you are not in thanksgiving, you are not abounding in faith. Your faith cannot be strong. It cannot be complete until you start praising God. A person who says, man, I'm standing strong in faith, but your faith is all just, oh, God, please move, and you're wailing, and you're whining, and you're griping, and you're complaining. Your faith isn't complete. It's impossible to imagine what you've prayed for coming to pass without there being some response of praise. If you believe God for a million dollars, you know, if we believe God for $15,000 this week, and you've had your faith out there, and if you were anticipating it, and if the report comes back that we got it, I guarantee you, you aren't going to hear people cry. You aren't going to hear people say, moan and say, oh, that's a shame. You know what there'll be? There's going to be some form of praise. When you see your answer come, there will immediately be some praise. If you were believing for a million dollars, and if you got a million dollars, somebody would go, praise God, amen. You can't imagine your answer to prayer coming without there being a response of praise or thanksgiving. It's just natural. It's normal. Faith can't be complete without being having praise and thanksgiving. So, if you don't have praise and thanksgiving in your life, then faith isn't complete in your life. Your faith is inadequate. It's immature. It's not done yet. So, praise is one of the ways that you get your faith strong. If you operate in praise, it automatically pushes you into a higher realm of faith. And one of the reasons for it is is because most of us are so dominated by what we see, taste, hear, smell, and feel that we say, 
Well, I just hadn't got any reason to praise God right now. They're going to repossess my car. My wife's left. The dog bit me today. And everything's going wrong in my life. If you're just looking at all the negative things, and if you are tied in to what you see, then you'll say, I just don't feel like praising God. But you know what? When you start praising God when it doesn't look like it, you know what you have to do? You must step over into the realm of faith. You've got to get out of fear and feelings, and you have to take a step, a leap of faith into that unknown realm to start praising God when everything isn't going good. I mean, immediately, if you start praising God, you have to start pushing into faith. And if you have been undisciplined, and if, you have, or if you're a griper and a complainer, I promise you, if you start praising God, you'll, it'll, it'll turn. You'll start like, oh, Father, I thank you for healing me. Thank you that by the stripes of Jesus I'm healed, even though I don't feel healed. God, I really hurt. And, and oh, God, the doctor. And before you know it, you're right back into griping. That's the way a person who's, who's just bound, and he'll start, oh, God, thank you for healing me. The pastor said to praise you, but I sure don't feel like it. And it looks like things are getting worse. And, you know, if I don't get some money by this time, and you'll be right back into griping and complaining. But if you just make a decision, hey, I am not going to gripe and complain. One hour a day. One hour a day, I will not gripe. I mean, if I die, I'm going to go down during this hour praising God. Just one hour. If you, if you can't come off cold turkey, begin to wean yourself away from this gripe and complaining. And just say, one hour a day, I'm going to praise God, and I'm not going to say anything but something positive. And you know what? If you start praising God, what it'll do, it makes you focus your attention on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, because there's nothing praiseworthy in the natural. You can't praise God over this country. You can see some good things, but it's because of what God's doing. Ultimately, this nation is ultimately going to fail. All of the kingdoms of this earth are going to fail. This isn't a total 100% God-run country, and it never will be. It's not a theocracy. It's a democracy. A democracy is not God's system of government. Now, we got God's blessing on it, and praise God, let us get it back to its former glory. And I'm not criticizing, but I'm saying that there's always something to gripe about in the natural. Nothing's perfect. And if you are just going to wait until you can see everything right before you praise God, you'll never praise God. So for you to make a commitment that I'm going to be a praiser, you have to start getting your attention focused upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, and you'll find out that, man, everything, it's like this song, when you turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I guarantee you, all of a sudden, you'll find out all of the things that bother you so much, just leave when you praise God. Praising God will change you dramatically. It will push you into faith. It will change your focus. Just like, you know, one of these cameras where you go to the zoo and you take a picture through the chain link fence. You can either focus on that fence and everything else is a blur, or you can change the focus, not move the camera, not change what's in it, its view at all. Just change the focus and that chain link fence will totally disappear and you can focus on that animal or whatever behind the fence. Did you know that that's exactly the way it is in your life? All of us have problems. Nobody's without problems. The people that are praising God and not worshiping God, I can guarantee it's not because these people don't have problems. It's because their focus is different. And when you start praising God, it makes you change your focus. If you are still focused on the negative, you will not be able to praise God one hour. 
For you to praise God now, you've got to get your attention on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. And then it's like I was talking last night. When you do that, boy, the battle is for the mind. You take your attention and put it on the things of God. And as you think in your heart, that's the way you're going to be. If you're spiritually minded, it's life and peace. And on and on and on. It's just tremendous what praise and worship does to you. The second area is that praise and worship is literally strength to seal the enemy and the avenger. Real quickly, look over here in Matthew chapter, is it chapter 21, I think? Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on what's called Palm Sunday. Matthew chapter 21. And in verse 4, well, let's see. The people were worshiping and praising God, etc. And in verse 15 it says, When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were sore displeased. This is a little P.S. or parenthetical phrase, but let me stick this in. (laughs) You know the people that get sore displeased when other people are praising God? this old Pharisee syndrome. People are always jealous of people that can just really praise God. I better leave that alone. If I don't, I'm going to stick on that a while. Let me go on. You need to think about this. What were they sore displeased over? People praising God. What is there to gripe and complain about people praising God? Well, they were actually cutting down tree branches. This is not good for the ecology. Man, they were defacing public property. And they they cut those tree branches down and threw them on the ground. And they literally took off their coats, their outer garments, and put them on the ground. And they were worshiping, bowing down and worshiping Jesus. I think this is just a little bit too much. You didn't have to go that far. A hand clap would have been sufficient. Amen. Take your clothes off and throw them before God. They were sore displeased because people were loving Jesus. Man. And he said unto them, Hearest thou and they said unto him, Hearest thou not what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise. You know, this is a quote from Psalms chapter 8. Let me read this passage to you. Jesus was quoting Psalms chapter 8, and here's the way it reads in Psalms chapter 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mayest still the enemy and the avenger. He changed two words. Instead of perfected praise, or instead of ordained strength, the way it says over in Psalms chapter 8, he says, you have perfected praise. And Jesus was quoting from the Greek Septuagint, which was a translation. But, you know, he did not change the meaning. What you can do is you can take this as a commentary. You can substitute those words in there. What this is meaning is, if you go back to Psalms chapter 8, it says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength, or perfected praise. Praise is strength, is what he's saying. He's using those words interchangeably. Praise is power. Praise is strength. Over in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, it says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. You can see so many examples. Second Chronicles chapter 20 talks about when Jehoshaphat went out to fight the battle. He put Judah, the praisers, first, and the praisers went out, and as they praised God, it says that he said ambushments, and three nations literally wiped each other out down to the last man so that all Judah had to do was go in there and gather the spoils. Three days to gather the spoils. Paul and Silas, when they were put in prison, I guarantee you they weren't praising God because they had goosebumps going up and down their spine and because they were feeling something. They were praising God by faith. They were praising God instead in spite of their circumstances. They were changing that focus and looking beyond and started to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. And I heard a man the other day say that what it was, they got to singing praises unto God and God got to patting his foot. The Bible says the earth is his footstool. And as he patted his foot, man, it caused an earthquake to come through there and opened up all of the jail cells and praise God they were delivered. There was power when praise went out. Praise is power in your life. You know, one of the most effective things that you can do against the devil is to praise God. The devil cannot stand praise. He cannot handle praise. It's too powerful for him. Many times when the devil's on your case, the tendency is, oh, God, and you grab somebody and you start praying and you start wailing and you get, you know, what you can do, laugh. Over in Psalms chapter 2, it says that the Lord in heaven, it says, why are the heathens? Rage. Why do they rise up together? They make all of these noises. They say these things. It says God will laugh at them. He'll have them in derision. You know, there's power in just laughter. Praise. You need to laugh at the devil. You need to give the devil a hard time. I tell you, when you laugh, he just can't figure out what you're doing. It scares him. He says, this is not right. They should be crying. They're laughing. What's going on? Do they know something I don't know? Man, it just drives the devil mad. I ain't got time to go through all this, but if you went back to Psalms chapter 4, I mean uh, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, those scriptures that we read earlier about Lucifer and Satan, you know, it said that his transgression was, he says, I will be like the Most High God. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will sit on the sides of the north. Most people think, that Satan was a God-hater. The truth is, Satan was envious of God. Satan didn't like, for instance, just say, I hate everything that God's got. I don't, wanna, I don't want anything to do with morality and goodness. I don't want any of this. I want to be corrupt and vile. Satan's transgression was that he was so envious of God that he says, I'm going to be like him. I want what he's got. And you know one thing reserved for God alone. And Satan, as it says over there in Ezekiel chapter 28, was the anointed cherub that covered. And it says all of his pipes and his tabrets, that's talking about musical in, instruments, were in him in the day he was created until iniquity was found in him. It's been theorized. I don't believe it's totally there enough to make a doctrine out of it, but it's been theorized that Satan was actually uh, an angel that operated in praise and worship, led all of the worship and the praise and the honor. And that's one reason that Satan uses music and does so many things with it. But one thing reserved for God alone is praise and worship. Angels will not, have not, cannot accept praise and worship. They always say, don't worship me, worship God. Worship is something that is reserved for God alone. And so Satan wanted what God had, his glory and his splendor. And one thing reserved for God alone is worship and praise. Satan desired worship and praise. He wanted that credit. 
He didn't like giving it all to God. He wanted to start getting praise. He wanted to be the one in the limelight and getting all of the attention. And when Satan fails, you know what it does? It's just, have you ever seen somebody who is a total egotist and they wanted to be the center of everything? Nobody else could do anything. They had to dominate everything. The Bible calls it wanting preeminence among the brethren. All of us have seen somebody like that. And when that person is around, it just drives them mad. They hate it if anybody else gets credit. There's always jealousy. There's always envy. Well, that's a characteristic of the devil. That's the way that the devil is. And you know what happens? When you start praising God, the reason it drives demons out is because Satan cannot bear to hear the one thing he's always wanted and could never get. He can't bear to hear you worship God. It just drives him up the wall. It reminds him of his defeat. You can see scriptural examples where Elisha called for a minstrel, and when the minstrel came and played, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he began to prophesy unto Jehoshaphat. You can see that when David played with the heart, the evil spirit left Saul. You can see that, man, when praise comes upon things, that it drives demons out. It's strength, it's power to still. It says in Psalms 8, 2, to still the enemy... And the avenger praise stops the devil because he cannot stand to see God being worshipped and praised. He hates it. It torments him. I like to torment the devil. So it's good to praise God because it changes your focus, gets you into a realm of faith, gets you in your most holy faith. But you know what? When you praise God, it literally drives the devil mad. He cannot stay around praise. That's, you know, there's reasons why we praise God in church. Most people think, well, it's just the, it's the tradition. No, there's a reason. Somebody somewhere had a revelation that, man, when you praise God, it's strength, it's power, that it drives off evil spirits, it prepares people's heart, it changes their focus, puts their attention on the Lord, and somebody somewhere started that, and it's a great tradition. Tradition, it's a wonderful thing to do. And it literally prepares people's hearts. It drives Satan just wild. You need to do this personally. You need to make your life a life of praise and worship because it will change you and change the devil. There's very few things you can do that affect both of those areas at the same time, but praise will do that. And the third area, I'm just going to have to touch this, but a lot of people don't know this, but you know that praise affects God too. And there's very few things that we can do that actually affect God. Over in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it talks about them ministering unto God. And what does that mean, ministering unto God? Man, they didn't sit down and preach to Jesus. They didn't put a chair out there and believe by faith that God was sitting there and preach to him or do something like that. When it says that they ministered unto the Lord, you know what they were doing? They were loving him through praise and worship. He receives our praise and worship. Psalms chapter 22 says that he inhabits the praises of his people Israel. God inhabits the praises of Israel. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will dance over thee. Or I missed that. How's it go? He will joy over thee with singing anyway. He will rest in his love. He will rejoice over you with joy. God literally rejoices as you rejoice and as you worship him and as you give unto him. You can minister unto God. When the scripture says, bless the Lord, that doesn't mean you say, bless the Lord. But it means that you say, God, I love you, and God gets blessed. 
God loves your praise and worship. God wants you to love Him. God has a crush on you. God loves you intimately more than you realize. God hadn't just tolerated you. He didn't save you out of a sense of debt or obligation. God did it because he loves you. And God loves you so much, it's just like your little kid coming and saying, I love you, and boy, it just does something to you. It makes your heart go pitter-patter. Did you know when you start talking to God that way, God rejoices over you with joy. God gets excited. You can bless God. That's awesome. Most of us don't know that we have anything to give God. We think, man, I don't have anything to give Him. I just have to serve Him. I get this slave mentality. But God, I don't have anything to offer you. Yes, you do. Adam and Eve worshiped God every day. They didn't go out and lead people to the Lord and do all this. All of those things are good. But I'm saying the number one thing He wants is you and your praise and worship. Revelation 4:11 says, In heaven right now they are around the throne. And uh, 24 elders are seated on their uh, thrones. And the four living creatures are saying continually, night and day, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And every time they fall down and worship the Lord, the 24 elders take their crowns and throw them before God and they worship God. And it says that these, tw- uh, these four living creatures are doing it, they cease not, night and day, but to worship God. So if they aren't ceasing, they're doing it constantly, and every time they do it, the 24 elders are falling down and worshiping the Lord. This just means that heaven is just one constant scene of praise and worship. Praise and worship is all it is. And here's what they're saying. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, for thou hast... For, uh, man, how's it go? You might want to... Here it goes. Read Revelation 4:11. I know where it is. I can find it. Revelation 4.11 Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. It says, For His pleasure everything was and is created. That means the original purpose and the still purpose. The purpose that still exists right now is for the pleasure of God. You were created for God's pleasure. You were created not just to give God somebody else to do something. God needed some workers. Man, I've got a tape that's an hour and a half teaching on this, and I haven't got time to go into it, but please listen to that because most people have missed this point. We don't know how much God loves us. God loves you, and He longs to have you love Him back. Any person who gives love has a need to be loved. And most of us don't realize we've got anything to give God other than money or time. But God wants you to love Him. And you can bless God. You can magnify God. You can exalt the Lord. And it ministers to God. I believe God loves it. Man, God was rejoicing. You know, one time my wife had a vision and saw angels as we were worshiping God dancing over us. Changed her life when she saw that. And God's no respecter of persons. The Bible says that he does that. The angels of God were having a grand time tonight and worshiping and praising God. Man, God gets excited when you tell him that you love him and then you worship him and praise him. I believe God's got my picture in his wallet. Amen. God loves me. And he takes it out and shows it to people. 
God feels that way about you. You need to recognize it. Praise changes you. It drives the devil mad and drives him off, and it blesses God all at the same time. Our life ought to be just consumed with praise. Praise is one of the most important things you can do to release spiritual authority, to get your mind renewed so that it's not submitted to God, but it's submitted to, I mean, it's not submitted to the devil, but it's submitted to God. Well, praise is just nearly a cure-all. It's nearly something that is an antidote for any problem that you've got. And I tell you, you need to take this about praise and balance the teaching about authority because some people get so demon conscious and get to thinking about, I've got to take authority over this, that you get all on the defensive. The best defense is a good offense. Man, if you keep the ball all of the time, the other teams can't score. Amen? If you're constantly praising God and don't give your mind over to the devil and allow him to plant thoughts in your mind, he can't win. And so as you praise God, that's one of the most effective things that you can do. You need to get strong praising the Lord. And not just do it in a church service. You don't have an excuse not to praise God. Today, with tapes and things like that, even those of us that can't sing very good, you can crank the volume up, just sing at the top of your lungs and act like it's you that you're hearing. Amen? You can sing right along with them. You just don't have an excuse for not praising and worshiping the Lord. Man, it's awesome. Praise God. I tell you, brothers and sisters, God's done everything for us. It's not our turn to gripe at God. It's our turn to come to the Lord and say, God, show me what it's like that if I'm the weakest saint that ever lived, I've got more than Moses, more than anybody. Pray Ephesians 1, 15 through the end of the chapter and say, Lord, open up the eyes of my understanding and show me this. Give me revelation of it. Reveal to me what I've really got. Start showing me the things. Let the communication of my faith become effectual by the acknowledging of the good things that are in me in Christ Jesus. And I tell you, if you can get a revelation of these things, it'll transform your life. You'll see a lot of miracles. You'll see a lot of healings. You'll see a lot of other people led to the Lord. You'll begin to be effective in all kinds of areas. You'll see prosperity begin to work if you'll follow through with the things we've taught this week. For a complete list of teaching tapes by Andrew Womack or information about how Andrew can minister at your church, please write to Andrew Womack Ministries, Post Office Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80934. Or call our helpline with all your tape requests and special prayer needs Monday through Friday from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Mountain Time at area code 719-635-1111. That's 719-635-1111. And thank you for listening.